Hey, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and open it up to 1 Corinthians and Isaiah and Hosea. But if, you, if that scares you, just open it to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew, a Bible in the pew right in front of you. Um, and 1 Corinthians is on, is on page 1791 is where we're going, thanks. sermon's going to be a little weird, so just. If, if you look on page 1791 in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if it's, you're looking in your own Bible, you're looking at verse 54. So chapter 15, verse 54, you see there's two, there's a quotation right at the end of 54, and then there's a quotation that is all of verse 55, Okay. Usually when you see something like that in your Bible, that's a, that's a quotation from the Old Testament. And oftentimes, the Old Testament quotation is very key to understanding what's happening in the passage that you're reading. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read three scriptures, and I'm going to read the scripture that contains each of those two verses. So that when we come to 15, it'll all come together, hopefully. Hopefully is the key and operative word there. So turn to Isaiah 55. Or not, I'm sorry, 25. And if you've got a pew Bible, that's 1094. So this is Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. And so this is a, this is a prophecy from Isaiah five to seven hundred years before Jesus was ever born, speaking to God's people and, and making a promise to them in a time that was not particularly promising, okay? Start, I'm going to start in verse 6. So 25 verses. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, and the finest wines. Wine apparently needed to be mentioned twice. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. Think about that. He's talking about the mountain in Israel, in Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord. On this mountain, he, the Lord, will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. Not just the Israelites, all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. What is that shroud? What is that sheet that covers everybody? Look at the next verse. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Okay? So that's Isaiah 25. Now, a less optimistic passage. Hosea 13. This is page 1410 in your pew Bible. Hosea verse 13, and we're going to start in verse 12. 
Okay? Now, this is a prophecy from Hosea to God's people in Ephraim, and this prophecy is about how, because of their absolutely persistent, unrepentant attitude toward God and His way of saving them, they are all going to die. Does that sound cheery? It's really nice, isn't it? But that's what this oracle is about. Hosea is saying, basically, listen, you will absolutely not come to God, and therefore— you are all going to die in the most terrible possible way. Now, that's redemptive because it hasn't happened yet, right? But it's still the oracle. So let's, let's read, starting in verse 12. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. Pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives— he does not come to the opening of the womb. Now verse 14. This is the quotation. I will ransom—okay, sorry, I, f I forgot to preface this for you. In the New International Version, if you're reading a Pew Bible, this is put in the, in the form of a statement. It is not, that, is a, that is not the best way to translate this. And most other translations translate these next two lines as questions. It is four rhetorical questions. It should not read— it should not read, I will ransom them from the grave, he, but rather, shall I ransom them from the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? Those rhetorical questions, the answer actually is no. And then he asks two more rhetorical questions, the ones quoted by Paul. Where, O death, are your plagues, or your victory, of destruction, right? Where, O grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion— even though he thrives among his brothers, an east wind from the Lord will come. Blowing in from the desert, his spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouse will be plundered, all of its treasures. The people of Samaria, that's the people of Ephraim, must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Okay? So note the context of the Old Testament quotation. Where, O death, is your, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's not a taunt against death here. It's a taunt against the people, right? Okay, so now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Starting in verse 35, and I'm going to read through till verse 58. But So he's been talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, that we're going to be raised from the dead. That's, that's incredibly important. And now he gets to the very idea of being raised bodily and what that, the implications of that. And here's what he says. But some may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed— perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another— the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown, that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not, did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of dust, the dust of the earth. The second man was from heaven, as was the earthly man. So are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's a lot of Bible reading, right? Hopefully it's encouraging. <clears throat> one, of, one of the secrets to endurance is believing that something is temporary. I mean, think about almost anything that you've endured. If you believed it was going to end, it was, it's, it's much easier to bear, especially if that ending is, is relatively soon. Right? There's this cost-benefit to how much longer am I going to endure this? How much is it worth getting to the end? And how bad is it right now when you kind of do the math of that and decide if you're going to keep going? <clears throat> but for almost anything— if we believe it's worth getting through and we know it's temporary, we can get through it. And people give up when they just don't see the end anymore. They don't believe it's coming. They don't think that they can make it. That's when they drop off. That's when they die. That's when they don't live. And one of the things that I think is important to recognize in this is that this is true of almost all the hardest and most important things in our life. Almost all of the, the most spiritually and morally and humanly important things turn out to be very difficult. And therefore, all of them need some kind of power of endurance behind them. Otherwise, we can't, we can't complete them. And so, I mean, just think about, think about all, all of the, all your whole life, right? Your, your life's work, whatever, you know, your vocational accomplishment, what are you trying to do with your life? That's, that's not easy usually, right? 
parenting is, is not easy to do well. It's not easy. Trying to stay married, it's, it's not easy to do, right? Trying to actually be a loving person rather than a selfish person consistently, it's not easy. Saying no to gossip because other people's image, the image of God and their value is more important than ingratiating other people to yourself. That's difficult. That's not easy, right? Godliness isn't easy. Doing what's right isn't easy. Doing what's valuable isn't easy. Doing the big things in life, they're not easy. And the modern way of handling that is to persuade ourselves that they're not that important. That's the modern way of handling this. So, you know, raising kids isn't it's, it's not easy, so we try to persuade ourselves that it's, it's all genetic, or it's all just going to turn out the way they're going to turn out, and we'll do what we can, or I was a good parent even if my kid's terrible. If our marriage is going terribly, we just console ourselves with the fact that marriage is difficult, that the genders look like they weren't even made to get along. It's just, it's a miracle if people do stay together, and it's just not that big a deal. And so that's, we think that way about divorce, and we, we think that way about our vocation, that, you know, if, if my vocation isn't moving the way I want to, well, you know what, it's just, I'm really here to just have a good time. I'm, I'm the idea that I'm here to change the world or accomplish something significant. It's not, I just can let that go. These things aren't inherently important. They're just important to me. And if they fail, then I'll just let them go and I'll do something else. And we gravitate towards easier, less difficult things that require less endurance. Instead of growing in character, we diversify our portfolio of success advancement, and therefore we deal with the fact that it's hard to endure by gravitating towards things that don't require endurance and setting our hearts less on the things that do. And the result is a shallower people who accomplish much less, who can endure much less, and who aren't godly. And we just—and then we look at ourselves and we go, what's wrong with us? And what's required is the ability to gladly endure anything. Because we believe that the thing we're doing is intrinsically worthwhile, and the thing standing against us is temporary and finite and defeatable. And so the Apostle Paul comes here and he says, listen, there's been 14 chapters of reaming out the Corinthians, right? Little encouragement, boom, you got to hear this. Little encouragement, boom, you got 14 chapters. He gets to the end, he's got one more thing to correct him on, and that is that some of them don't believe in the resurrection. And he goes, look, you got to believe in the resurrection. But he gets to this part, and he goes, listen, this is supposed to help you. I know you struggle with this doctrine. I know you—I st- know—he's he's saying, I know you're, you're struggling with the doctrine, but listen, this is supposed to help you. The one, the one thing we constantly deny is our own mortality. It is the one thing we cannot overcome. It is the one thing we cannot endure. Time will take us all. But listen, it is temporary, and, and it will be beaten in Christ. The, the, the perishable, you and I, will be raised imperishable. There is a defeat to all of this, and therefore, every struggle, every, every part of all of this, therefore, is temporary— and God will defeat every one of those things, the final one being death. And at that point, the one about who which always had victory, death, will lose its bright and ability and stature and power. And all of these things will be put away. Therefore, right, he ends with that verse. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear brothers, right, it's partly—it's not just the ending of chapter 15— 
It's the beginning of the ending of the whole book. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Why? Because everything that wants to move you is temporary. You see, that's the point. It's all—that's all going to expire. There is something else. And if you believe that, and if you have hope in it, all of these things that seem like there is no end— you will recognize that they do, and that allows us to stand firm and not be moved. It allows the possibility of endurance in very difficult things. Now, as we, as we go through this passage, um, I, we, we need to look at a couple of different parts. The first one is that the, the, the Apostle Paul seems to feel like there are certain objections— that are a little bit frivolous. So, he, in fact, he says how foolish, right? So he gets to there, and the, there's some people that they say they don't believe in the resurrection, and their reason is, how can that possibly be? Right? They have what and how questions. Well, how, how are the dead going to be raised, right? It's going to be some kind of, like, glorified zombie? I mean, what, or, you know, or, or, or what are they going to be raised into? I mean, what, they're just going to be us again? And then what? That we're going to live forever? That's kind of weird. It's hard to imagine what that's going to look like. It's a little inconceivable. And you see, the, the apostles' response to that is not, wow, that's a really good question, right? Like, when people have objections against Christian faith, sometimes they're, they're really good questions, right? And you, you'd be like, that's a really good question. And there's lots of really good questions, right? And then there are others that are not really good questions. And some, you know, what do we normally do when somebody asks a question that's not a really good question? What we normally do is we say, that's a really good question, and we try to answer it. But you see, he, he's not doing that. He, he says, you know, actually, that's a terrible question. It's a terrible question. Now, now why does he do that? Right? He says, he says, let's just think about that question. How is it going to happen? How are the dead going to be raised? I mean, just think about anything in real life, right? Think about a plant. You take a plant. A plant has a seed. You bury the seed in the ground, right? It grows into something totally different. Right? Totally different. Well— Duh! I mean, is that really that hard to put together that something could become something totally different? That happens all the time in life. But yet, but yet you're like, how is this going to happen? That's not really a very good objection. And then the whole question of like, of the what? Like, you know, well, what are we going to be when we're going to be raised? Well, you don't have to answer that. That question doesn't need to have an answer. The issue is, <clears throat> is there any reason to doubt God's creativity? Right? He's like, just— just look around, right? Now, one of the things that's confusing is when the, the passage here, it translates fl flesh. There's different kinds of flesh. That's, that's flesh. There is a euphemism for body or form. So it's not like there's literally different kind of meat in different things. That's not the point. The point is there's lots of different forms in the world, right? And so he's like, look, there's, there's, there's humans, right? There's animals, there's fish, and they're all really different. So why, why would you think that God isn't going to make us something that's really different, fully creative, however he wants to do it, but still with some relationship to the thing that was planted? Why is that difficult? It's not difficult. And, and he says, even if you just look at the—look, uh, in terms of astron—in terms of astronomy, he's like, look, there's the earth, there's, there's all kinds of—even different stars, they're different from each other. There's all kinds of different glories, there's all kinds of different things. If you just think about that for a minute, it's not a very good objection. Now, what's—now, why, why does he bring that up? Why be—why be acidic like that? Well, the main reason seems to be that the Corinthians are kind of cocky. 
right? You read this whole book, they're a little arrogant. And you see, the, what, what they need the most is not just a clever answer to a silly question. They need to be told that their question is silly. Because the thing that needs to be corrected actually isn't their proposition. The thing that needs to be, that needs to be corrected is their attitude in bringing the question. Right? And so to tell somebody who asks a silly, pedantic, frivolous question, to say to them, oh, that's a really good question. Let me try to give you a clever answer. Sometimes doesn't really help. Sometimes we have to say that the question is silly, and he does intentionally because you've got to come to terms with your real objection. What's your real objection? It's not this. If God exists— and he created everything that is. What and how questions about the resurrection? They're, those are great curiosity questions. I mean, aren't you curious about that? I mean, I'm curious about that. The what and the how. And I, I mean, I'd love it for there to be answers to that. But for that to be an objection, Paul's like, ah, I don't think so. And I would say that's still perfectly valid now. There's nothing rationally or scientifically invalid about the statement, we are going to be raised imperishable. And I don't think as Christians we should be embarrassed about that at all. Let's move on. The second thing in this passage that I think is important is that Christ has destroyed the effects of death. That there is a coming resurrection. It is going to transform our existence from a perishable one to an imperishable one. From a mortal one to an immortal one. And it's going to be pretty stinking fantastic. And, um— and I know that ever since Kant and the Enlightenment, that um, people have been trying to besmirch the idea that God would make absolutely unblushing, wonderful, tremendously good promises to us, and that we can still be perfectly rational and moral beings in embracing those. The Bible doesn't care. Right? There's this kind of this attitude out there that, you know, if, if God promises to be astoundingly good to us, that somehow we're morally shallow to follow him. Because he's, you know, it's kind of like the Job thing, right? Well, he's only following you because you're being good to him. Well, that's true. And I think that's one of the reasons why life is hard right now. Because if you're only following God just because of the candy he's going to give you in the end, you're going to fall away. You're not, you're not going to make it. You're not going to be a Christian. You're not going to stick it out. You're going to go do something else. You're going to seek some kind of self-salvation. The whole, whole process of redemption is designed to weed those people out. Okay? Life is designed to weed you out if you're only coming to God for the stuff he might give you. Because at some point you'll say, it's not worth hoping in that. I'm going to go get what I can right now because I don't know if it's going to happen. Because that's the kind of faith you'll have. But if you trust in Jesus as Jesus, as King and Lord, and if you follow him for the right reasons to begin with, it is not in any way a morally shallowing thing for God to turn around and say to the one he loves, I am going to give you everything. Why shouldn't he? Jesus said, Jesus once said to a bunch of Israeli Jews, he said, listen, you guys are all bad fathers. <laughs> right? You're all bad fathers. But when your son asks you for food, you feed him. Right? You don't give him a, you don't, you don't be like, oh, you want a hardball? Like, here's, a, here's a poisonous snake. You don't do that, and you're terrible. You're all terrible, right? That's, that's us, right? But he says, but you still, you still are generous. There's a, there's a measure of generosity that comes out of the image of God that's in you for your own. And so why shouldn't God, toward his own, be immeasurably generous? 
The idea that somehow it is shallow for us to be glad about the fact that God has sworn to be immeasurably generous to all who would believe in Christ is nonsense. It is a frivolous and unreasonable objection. Do not let it emotionally intimidate you. If you are following God for all the goodies, that's not going to work. But if you have come to Christ because he is right and true, because you needed his forgiveness and you've recognized his way is right, and if you followed him because he's worth following, and you've become Christ's, it should not be strange to you that the one who loves you would be ultimately and eternally good to you. To not believe that is to believe that God is ungenerous and unloving and uncaring and a liar and disinterested in his own, which is silly. How self-congratulatory is it for us to think we are so generous and we are so loving and we take care of each other and we care about people and yet somehow it would be weird if God would pour out his full measure of blessing on us because he wants to. Everything that we experience that is good is God already pouring that out. And most of what we experience of deprivation is that which comes from our own selfishness and ungenerous nature. The idea that Jesus would destroy death and give immortality and undo all that is wrong with mortality is almost self-evident. There's four things um, in this passage that Paul talks about as being wrong with mortality. Um, When we finally stop diverting— Blythe Pascal once said— One of the basic truths of reality is everybody's going to die. And therefore, one of the basic truths about humanity is we just constantly divert ourselves from that fact. You might be sitting there and be going, you know, I don't like church, and this is kind of an irrelevant sermon. Here's why you think the sermon's irrelevant. Because you don't think you're going to die. You're not thinking about that. You don't spend your time thinking about the fact that you are going to die, that the death rate is still hovering somewhere around 100%, and you can do whatever you want, health (laughs) food-wise. It is. Listen, you can do whatever you want health food-wise, and you can eat right, and you can act right, and you can live clean, and you can do all that stuff. You're still—all you're doing is putting yourself in the refrigerator. You are still going to go bad. It's a fact. And all that stuff's good. All that stuff's good. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, chapter 6. That's all good to do so that you can live fruitfully and serve God because your labor for the Lord is not in vain, right? But you're just going to—you're still going to go bad. And you see, it's diversion that makes us feel like the resurrection isn't relevant. It's diversion. It's not—it's unreality. The minute you recognize the impendingness of your decay, you'll realize that. And here's how you'll know. At the worst moments of your life, if you're a believer, that's when the doctrine of the resurrection will be sweetest to you. When you're old. And you're—you just—every morning, it just hurts to just get going. When you're sick. When you're going in for surgery. When things are just coming apart and you don't know what's going to happen. It's at that moment where you realize, I am totally powerless. And, and, and Paul gives four things. He says, he says, one is the perishability of life, right? He says, we are born perishable. I mean, I don't know about, I don't know about this for you, but there, there are things in my, refri- in my refrigerator that I give myself the license to eat because if I don't, they're going to go bad, Right? 
And that's one, one of the things that I, I hate about the end of the Christmas season is no matter how much self-control I exert in drinking the last half gallon of eggnog, I cannot make it last until November because it's going to go bad sometime in March, right? No matter how much liquor I put in it, it's still going to go bad, right? And so it's just, it's going to perish. It's perishable. And I mean, that's looming over everybody. The fact is you may be in perfect health right now, but you're perishable. And the only thing you can do about that is just divert yourself from the idea. Unless you believe in a resurrection. The second thing is dishonor. It's it's something about the perishability of this mortal life that's just dishonoring. It's humiliating. It's humiliating. And one one of the places we see that is in sort of sometimes the last stages of age. It's one of the reasons why, why we don't take care of elderly people in our homes anymore. That's why people don't die in homes. They die in other places. Because the last time of life, we've got to remove them, partly because we don't want to deal with them, partly because they feel humiliated. It's humiliating to perish. And so many things in life about just how we age and how we grow and how we get sick and how we fail and how we are human, it's just, it's constantly humiliating. And the way we deal with that is we just deny it. We just, we go around somehow thinking that we're fantastic when, when in reality, if we saw things the way we are, we would constantly feel humiliated. We just constantly feel humiliated. And we, and we have, and so we have a mental protection. We have a coping strategy to just think that we're fantastic. We do some kind of helpful self-talk so we don't constantly feel humiliated. Why? Because, because we could just turn to the resurrection. That the humiliation is going to end. The, the third thing is weakness, which I think feeds into the humiliation. How, how weak are you? I cannot believe how weak I am. Physically, mentally, emotionally. I'm one of the stronger people that I know, and I am weak. It's astounding. And all my, all my moral attributes are weak. My physicalness is weak. There's just a, there's an astounding just weakness in me, right? I remember, it's my, one of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn is just thinking about starting to go off on this whole quest thingy, and um, he's thinking about um, the first king that took the ring. And he recognizes he's in the same line, and he says, the same blood runs in my veins, the same weakness. Right? And that's a, this is a universal truth about humanity. There is a weakness that runs in us that is humiliating, that is part of our perishability, that should bother us. Does it bother you? Do you have a, do you have a clear enough image of Christ that your weakness bothers you and that you long for it to be something that at some point stops? And does it bother you that you're constantly fighting against it? And if it doesn't bother you that you're constantly fighting against it, are you fighting against it? And if you're not, isn't that worse? Right? And the fourth thing is just the natural limitation that we're not that big a deal. 
That he's like, he's like there's, a, there's an earthly Adam, and the earthly Adam is made in God's image, and there's a, a sense in which the earthly Adam is incredibly valuable in God's sight because he bears the image. But there's another sense in which the, the earthly Adam is made of dust. Right? That's what, I mean, that's what God says after the fall. He says, listen, I created you out of dirt, and you are going to die and turn back into dirt. You are earthly. And there's, there is a fundamental earthly nature to all of us that we don't transcend the granite. Right? That's humiliating, isn't it? For all our ideas, for all our math, for all our telescopes, for all our interstellar whatevers, we don't transcend the dirt because we're perishable and weak and it's humiliating. And the ancients knew this because they didn't have technology and modern science to divert them from it and to delay it as far. And people died in their homes, and they saw it, and they, there was a sense in which they understood it. And so they tried to figure out what to do about it. And Paul comes along and says, listen, there's only, there's only one. There's only one to hope it in this. There's only one that became perishable, became weak, accepted the humiliation, and became of the dust of this earth, and overcame them to imperishability, the second Adam. There's only one. There is a second Adam. There was a first Adam, and we are all in the image of that first Adam. And he was of the dust, and he returned to dust, and we are of the dust, and we will return to dust. But there is a second Adam that we could also be of, right? Jesus, the one who became perishable, who became weak, who was humiliated, who became of this earth so that we could become of heaven. And in Christ, and only in Christ, has God shown and promised that in Christ he will destroy death and he will destroy its effects. And you see, the result of that is meant to be that we will have some hope in the immortality that Christ has promised. And that the result of that will also be a diminishing in the discouragement of our mortality, which sometimes we can't even bear to name. It's just an anxiety. We won't say, you know, I'm discouraged because I'm going to die. I mean, how many times—I mean, have you ever done that come to church? Hey, how are you doing, Bill? I'm kind of discouraged I'm going to die. How are you doing? You know? So we should, you should start saying that just to see what people do. I'm kind of discouraged I'm going to die. How about you? You know? <laughs> It's, I mean, it's sort of like, is that a scene in a Woody Allen movie? I mean, what, what's going on, right? And, and so there's so many of our fears that we don't even name. But listen, conscience always has its revenge. It still comes back as an unnamed anxiety, and it eats at you. And the point of the resurrection is not just the future, the encouragement of the future promise. It is the understanding that it is, it's our emotional need so that we can endure— And instead of just saying, well, I'm perishable, we can say, wait a second. I'm going to perish, so I better spend it. Right? I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've had this happen before, but like, what do you do if you're, like, you're a farmer? You go to the farmer's market and you try to sell your gala apples, right? And you've got two bushels left over. When you're done, it was the last farmer's market. What do you do? Well, you don't deposit them at the M&I bank, right? You, until next year. They're going to go bad. You donate them, right? You go, to, you go to a food pantry, you go to whatever, you give them to friends, you, you give them away. Why? You might as well spend them, right? You might as well spend them because they're all going to go away. They're all going to perish, 
right? So what happens when you recognize you're going to die, you're going to perish, you are weak, it is humiliating, you are of this earth, you are going to return to dust, but, but Christ, if you belong to the one second Adam from heaven, you will ultimately become of heaven. Now what do you do with your perishability? You see what happens? Your, our perishability becomes motivation to live. So that, so, that, so that God can say to us, God can say to us, now death is a motivator. Its sting is gone. Its victory is destroyed because Christ has given the victory. Instead of giving the victory to death, like in Hosea, who got the victory in Hosea? The people would repent. They're going to die. So who gets the victory? Death gets the victory. But in Jesus, he says, well, he says, thanks be to God, because in Jesus Christ, God has given who the victory? He's given it to us. He's given us the victory. The loss goes to death so that our perishability can now be spent. We can spend it because it's all going to go bad. Let's look at one more thing really quick, and that is what resurrection is for. I think it's important for us to understand that the point of this is not immorality. I'm sorry. Obviously, it's not immorality. But it's also not immortality. The resurrection does not happen so that the resurrection can happen. The resurrection doesn't happen for its own sake. The resurrection is the prerequisite to inheriting a kingdom. Right? Why does Paul say— He says— as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Okay, so that's Jesus, right? So we are like Adam. That's going to happen. And as is the man from heaven, meaning Jesus is risen and resurrected, right? So also are those who are of heaven, meaning of faith. We believe in Jesus. We've, we belong to Jesus. We're of the man of heaven, therefore we are of heaven. So meaning Jesus will be resurrected, so we'll be resurrected, right? That's the point. And, and he says it twice. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Right? That's supposed to be good news, all right? Keep your cheering to yourself, apparently, okay? Right? Now, verse 50, right? I declare to you, brothers— that flesh and blood, the earthly man, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, inherit twice there. You see, what he's saying is, you see, the point of the resurrection, the point of the resurrection is not immortality. Immortality is the prerequisite to inheriting the full kingdom. That's the good news. The good news is what we, we generally call heaven, but since we've defined heaven in a bazillion different ways and everybody says it's whatever they want to say, it's kind of a silly word now. But what heaven means is that the reign that is in the heavens, meaning God's reign, his kingdom comes entirely, and we live in a world where he is king and lord and master and ruler. He is the one who—things are in his image, in his likeness. His goodness is in all things. It's that kind of a place. And in order to be in that kind of a place, immortality has to happen. There has to be an imperishability to the members of that kingdom. Therefore, Christ gives imperishability. Why? Not so you can be imperishable, Right? The, the, the ancients knew from the earliest days that being imperishable, it still mattered what you were doing imperishably, right? 
I mean, who, is it Prometheus that got his liver eaten out like every day? Right? It's like, he gets to do that forever. Does that sound imperishable? That sounds fun, right? I mean, the, the ancient Greeks knew imperishability was not the be-all, end-all. What were you going to do imperishably? Who were you going to be imperishably? To whom would you be related imperishably? What makes imperishability or immortality a great thing? Well, because all it is in Christianity is the prerequisite to inheriting the kingdom. Jesus, the one from heaven, right? That's the good news, right? In Christianity, immortality is not necessarily good news. But, but Paul is focused here on the immortality that comes from faith in Christ. Because not only is death defeated, but death's sting is defeated. One of the things that's kind of odd in this passage is the, is the quotation from Hosea. I mean, it's a little odd. Why use that verse? And then the next line is a little odd, too, where it says, the sting of death is sin. Now, why is that, why is that odd? The sting of death is sin. Because how would we assume that phrase would normally go if we'd read the book of Romans? Sorry, this is for Bible people now. If you're new to church, just hang in with me for a couple seconds. Right? The book of Romans, we would think it would be the other way around, right? For the sting of sin is death, meaning the, the thing that's so bad about sin is it brings death, right? That's, that's Romans all the way through. So why does he say it this way? Why does he say the sting of death is sin? Right? It's kind of odd. And why quote Hosea? That's kind of a depressing verse in the Bible, isn't it? And you see, here's why. Because the strength of death was always God. Why was death such a horrible thing in Hosea? It's because, it's, it's because it was God's wrath. It came because of the law, right? It says, it says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What does that mean? What it means is the wrath of God stood behind death. That's what it means. It means that because of the law, death had a sting that existed past its own sting, right? When we read sting, normally we think of like bees, right? You think, oh, the sting of death, that's like a bee sting. That's not what these guys meant. If you lived in Israel and somebody said a sting, you would normally think scorpion or snake. That is, um, you can get stung and you can step on the thing and destroy it and you're still going to die. You, you kill the thing that actually bites you, but it's already inserted something into the system that is going to take you down. You see, death had its own venom. It's always had its own venom. And its venom was always sin, our sin. Because our sin would, wouldn't come out, death hands us over to the law. That is, the wrath of God. The thing that's so scary about death isn't even just death. It's the fact that death is part and only the beginning of a judgment that comes because of the law. That we stand before justice and there is no time to make amends and there is no time to receive redemption. And so— you can, you can—the the death of death is not by itself good news. You can step on the scorpion, but if it's already stung you, you're still going down. <clears throat> you see, you have to be—you have to be an inheritor of the kingdom, too. You see, the reason why death was such a taunt for the people of Ephraim is their sin wouldn't come out. Um, some of you know that I have a one-week-old— Somebody from the church came over to do pictures. I know. Naked baby pictures. It's crazy. 
So this is Helena. Um, and she looks cute, but here's what she, how she decided to, to not come out. Okay, it, my my wife is is a is a labor monster. Like she's just no no painkillers. Goes in. Uh, Rachel, our second child, she had in the nurses station. I mean, just like couldn't even get us to a room. Um, our son Jude, very significant physical deformities. He was in the shape of a little C. Normal delivery, no problem. Right then comes Helena, and Helena just decided not to put her head down. Whatever, I'm just gonna put my face down. Right? They call it a face presentation. Here's the problem with a face presentation. They don't come out. You can, you can be the toughest woman in the world, and for all that pain, you get zero dilation. Hours and hours and hours and hours. But if that head isn't there, you don't get dilation. No baby's coming out. You get nothing for your pain. And ultimately, in the ancient world, mommy and baby usually died. That's the, that's the image of Ephraim in Hosea. God is saying, listen— Sin is inside of you like this child. And you're like a pregnant woman who has come to the moment of labor. But the problem is the baby isn't presenting. That is, the sin won't come out. And so you're stuck. There's no way out of this. So you're going to die. Therefore, death is coming. That is, the Assyrians are coming. And they're going to kill all of you. Why? Because it is, the, it is judgment Death comes as judgment. It has behind it the authority and weight of God. That's why it's so terrifying. You see, it's only in Christ, when Christ comes and overcomes the law through his death and brings forgiveness that we can accept, that if we will be unlike Ephraim, and if we will let the sin come out, if we will repent of our sins and turn to the one Adam who is from heaven and believe in Jesus and put our trust in him, then we become inheritors. And death's sting, that is sin, which is connected to the law, which therefore secures wrath against us, is all put away. So Paul can say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, meaning that our immortality, rather than an inheritance of death, becomes an inheritance of the kingdom. And so this is where we end up. Are, in relationship to this message about Jesus, are you going to be Ephraim? Are you going to be a Corinthian? Or are you going to be a believer? Are you going to be like a Corinthian and kind of sneer at the idea of the resurrection and say, whatever, I'll just continue to not face my mortality. Thank you very much, right? Or will you believe that the one who made us, why should he not be generous to us? Why is that so ridiculous an idea? Two, will you not be like Ephraim? Will you say, no, we're going to let this out. We are going to let this out. We are going to—I'm going to believe. I am not going to give death the ability to sting me permanently and put its poison in my system. I'm not going to let death be the terrifier it has always been. I am going to receive the victory that God gives through Jesus. Are you going to believe in, put your faith in, and your trust in Jesus? You can do that right now. And when that happens, when that happens, then— we can become the kind of people that can endure anything. Because everything we're enduring is ending. You are already, you are already perishable. 
right? You are, it's already going to end. The question is, now that I know that I'm perishable, but then I'm going to be raised imperishable, what will I do with this perishable life that I have? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to look what I'm struggling against dead in the eye. I'm going to do exactly what I believe is true and good and beautiful and in line with the kingdom of God and what Jesus cares about and loves. I'm going to be that person. I'm going to walk that out no matter what it takes. And I know I'm going to be able to endure because I have someone who died with me in Christ and who was raised so that the perishability, the weakness, the earthliness, and the humiliation of my mortality— will ultimately be destroyed. And so that the saying in Isaiah, that the the shroud that covered all the nations of the world on that holy mountain one day will be undone in the cross and ultimately put away with forever when we can inherit the kingdom of God, that will drive me and sustain me until that experience comes. Let's pray. Father, Will, will you please um, continue to make us a resurrection people? A people who believe very firmly in your generosity towards us and that it is not an act of selfishness to trust in your good nature. And help us to be people full of endurance and firmness. People who give ourselves fully to you because we know that our work in your name is not in vain. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us. And I pray that anybody who has not trusted in you, that you'd lead them there. That they would gladly surrender to the one who's come to save them, the one from heaven, the second Adam, the one who will help their sin come out permanently and save them from wrath, save them from death having a sting pray you'd be doing a a saving work right now, a heart-changing work. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.